So the reading from Mark chapter 11, and it's uh, verses 12 to 25. The next day as they were leaving Bethany, Jesus was hungry. Seeing in the distance a fig tree and leaf, he went to find out if it had any fruit. When he reached it, he found nothing but leaves, because it was not the season for figs. Then he said to the tree, May no one ever eat fruit from you again. And his disciples heard him say it. On reaching Jerusalem, Jesus entered the temple courts and began driving out those who were buying and selling there. He overturned the tables of the money changers and the benches of those selling doves, and he would not allow anyone to carry merchandise through the temple courts. And as he taught them, he said, Is it not written, My house will be called a house of prayer for all nations, but you have made it a den of robbers? The chief priests and the teachers of the law heard this and began looking for a way to kill him, for they feared him, because a whole crowd was amazed at his teaching. When evening came, Jesus and his disciples went out to the city. In the morning, as they went along, they saw the fig tree withered from the roots. Peter remembered and said to Jesus, Rabbi, look, the fig tree you cursed has withered. Have faith in God, Jesus answered. Truly I tell you, if anyone says to this mountain, go throw yourself into the sea, and does not doubt in their heart but believes that what they say will happen, it will be done for them. Therefore I tell you, whatever you ask for in prayer, believe that you have received it, and it will be yours. And when you stand praying, if you hold anything against anyone, forgive them, so that your Father in heaven may forgive your sins. Thank you. Do keep that uh, bit of the Bible open. That's what we're going to be focusing on now. Let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, as we were just singing a moment ago, we pray that you would cause your word to bear fruit in our lives, that you would help us to listen to these challenging words of Jesus. In his name we pray. Amen. Some things can look very, very good from a distance, but when you get up close, you see the truth. Maybe it's a house that looks really nice from the road. It's got what estate agents call curb appeal. You drive past and go, ooh, and then you go up the drive and you see, ah, it's falling apart. So that's why it is the price it is. Appearances can be deceiving, can't they? When you get up close, though, you see the reality. Uh, or maybe like a, a sports car, a really flashy car, and you think, wow, well, that'd be nice to drive. But then as you put the key in the ignition and nothing happens, you realize, oh, it doesn't have an engine in it. Oh, okay, well, it, it was nice from a distance. It would look nice on the driveway again, but... It's no, there's no reality behind it. It's especially sad when it happens with people, isn't it? Maybe there's somebody you really admire from a distance, and then you get to know them, you get to finally meet them, and you discover they're actually a really nasty piece of work. It's really disappointing, isn't it? Because it looks so good from a distance, but up close, the reality doesn't match the reputation. And in the bit of the Bible that Simon just read for us, there are a few things like that which look really good from a distance but actually are no good at all. The most obvious of those is that there's a tree in it. There's a tree, it's all leafy and green, all the signs of life, but up close, there's no actual fruit. And that's a picture of religion. It's a picture of many religious people who are lovely from afar, dreadful up close. Nobody likes that experience. It turns out Jesus doesn't like that either. 
So we're going to start by looking at this strange encounter with the tree and then focus on what it's a picture of and see whether there might be an alternative to just being flashy with nothing really going on. So in this first scene that we look at, Jesus curses a fruitless tree. Jesus curses a fruitless tree. Last week we saw him riding in the triumphal entry. He's ridden into Jerusalem, hailed as king. But he's not actually staying in Jerusalem. I don't know if it's just sort of too expensive or whatever it is. But he keeps, he's actually staying outside in a village called Bethany and he keeps popping in and out each day to the city centre. And this morning, it's the day after the big donkey ride, he's heading back into town with his disciples and he's feeling peckish. If they left without breakfast or something like that. But he, he sees in the distance there's a fig tree growing by the side of the road. It's a very common thing in that area. Unusually, though, for that time of year, it's in leaf. That looks promising. Maybe we've found our, our brekkie, verse 13. So seeing in the distance a fig tree in leaf, he went to find out if it had any fruit. When he reached it, he found nothing but leaves because it was not the season for figs. So it looked good from a distance. Up close, it is nothing but leaves. There's no fruit Now, this is uh, where some people who read this story think that Jesus kind of lets himself down a bit, that he he has a bit of a strop, he loses his temper at inanimate objects, that kind of thing. Uh, Let's see, in verse 13, it says, Then he said to the tree, May no one ever eat fruit from you again. And his disciples heard him say it. Now, what's going on there? Is he sort of hangry, as they say? You know, so hungry it makes you angry. Or, you know, you, oh, you see a biscuit tin in the cupboard, you go, oh, that's great, that looks exciting. And then you open it up, realise there's nothing inside it, chuck it across that kind of thing. He's just really lost his temper. Is that what's going on? And some people would say, well, even worse, it wasn't even the season for figs. Why is he getting so cross? It's not the tree's fault what time of year it is, is it? Well, no, it wasn't the time for the fig harvest. This is sort of end of March, early April time. The fruit doesn't come until June. But... Some fig trees produce little sweet little buds and you can pop those off and, and have a little tasty treat before the full crop comes in. If it's, if it's full of life and leaves and all bushy like this, that's a good sign that there will be some of those little things growing aplenty. So he, no, he knows there won't be figs, but there might be something, those yummy little treat sweet thingies. No. Looks are deceiving. He sees like, oh wow, great, bushy, leaves, brilliant, fruit. No. It is a fruitless tree, which is to say it is a useless tree. That's a sign that there won't be any fruit on it later either. What is the point of an apple tree? Apples. What is the point of a plum tree? Plums. What is the point of a fig tree that doesn't grow figs? Nothing. It's pointless. And so Jesus gets rid of it. But he doesn't sort of chop it down or anything. He speaks to it. He pronounces judgment on it. He curses it. May no one ever eat fruit from you again. Now, if we skip ahead to see what becomes of this tree, we see next day they're walking along the same road, and Peter sees this old sort of stump of a tree, and he recognizes it. It says in verse 20 and 21, in the morning as they went along, they saw the fig tree withered from the roots. Peter remembered and said to Jesus, Rabbi, look. The fig tree you cursed has withered. 
Look at that. This is the tree you yelled at yesterday. Now look at it. It's withered down to its roots. It's completely dead, totally destroyed, much faster than would have happened naturally. It was all in leaf yesterday. There is power in Jesus' words. Nobody will ever eat from it again. Now, if I went home and shouted at a hedge, it's not going to do anything, is it? But Jesus, there is power in his words. And if he pronounces judgment on something, if he curses it, it will happen. We need to take him seriously. But why make such a thing of this? Why, have a, why not just have him curse something that matters? Why do a tree? Well, it, it's, it, it's, it is false advertising. It is annoying to have leaves and no figs. But the fig tree is a symbol. It did really happen, but it's a symbol. In the Old Testament, fig trees are a picture of God's people, of Israel. So, so in Hosea chapter 9, God says this. When he first started Israel, he says... It was like seeing the early fruit on the fig tree. That was just, it was wonderful. It was fantastic. I would say things and they would just do it. They would respond in obedience and faith. It was like the early fruit on the fig tree. But over time, that changed. Just a few verses later, he says, they're blighted. Their root is withered. They yield no fruit. Because they don't listen anymore. They refuse to actually follow him. They don't actually do what he asks them to do. There's another time in Micah, chapter 7. He, uh, the Lord says, What misery is mine! There is no cluster of grapes to eat, none of the early figs that I crave. And what does that mean? He's not just hungry. He goes on to explain, Not one upright person remains. A fruitless fig tree is a picture of a nation that has turned its back on God, of people who are no longer producing the fruit of righteousness, who aren't actually listening and doing what God calls them to. So when Jesus curses a fruitless tree, that's a sign of coming judgment, not on sort of hedges and shrubs and things, but on people, on religious people which is exactly what happens next. This story of the fig tree, it's split into two halves, isn't it? We've got the, 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 um, the cursing it bit at the start, you've got the actually seeing it having happened at the end, and in between those two bits, like the kind of filling in the sandwich, is the important bit. The centre of the story is that Jesus curses fruitless religion. More important than cursing fruitless trees, Jesus curses fruitless Religion, he speaks judgment on it because he hates spiritual leafiness without spiritual fruit, that appearance of life without reality. So this whole fig tree, it's been a sort of enacted parable to explain what's going on when he, when he gets into town. Let's see what did happen. Verse 15 and 16. On reaching Jerusalem, Jesus entered the temple courts and began driving out those who were buying and selling there. He overturned the tables of the money changers and the benches of those selling doves and would not allow anyone to carry merchandise through the temple courts. It's an incredible scene, isn't it? It's so dramatic. Jesus arrives at the temple and starts trashing the place. He, he starts chasing people out of the building. Get out, get out. 
He starts flipping over the furniture. I considered whether I should sort of do an example of it, but I won't. He won't let anybody come through. If somebody did start doing that here this morning, we would probably call the police, wouldn't we? Somebody comes in and just starts flipping over tables and chucking chairs around. We would ring and say, there's a nutter on the loose. Somebody's coming and they're smashing the place up. Well, this isn't a sudden rush of rage. Just like the tree, this is a cursing, this is a judging something for its fruitlessness. It had been planned out the day before. We saw that last week, didn't we, in verse 11. He had visited the temple, and it says he looked around at everything. He's giving it a sort of having a recce, having a, having, checking it all out, and he is not impressed. He's come to the temple to see if there's any fruit, any righteousness, any genuine love for God, but what does he see? Chaos. Busyness business, but nobody really doing business with God. Last week, we imagined a a shop owner arriving at his store one night and seeing it in complete disarray. The people who've been working there that day have left it in a mess. And that person might say, right, I'm going to be back in the morning to sort this out. And when that morning came, he would have strong words, wouldn't he, for the people on duty? What are you playing at? How on earth could you leave it like this? That's what Jesus is doing here. Maybe a better example might be like a food hygiene inspector or something like that. Somebody from environmental health is coming, responding to complaints about a restaurant. So he comes from a, for a surprise inspection. And what does he find in the kitchen? Rats and cockroaches and mold. That inspector is going to shut it down, aren't they? He's going to shut it down. And that is what Jesus is doing here. As God himself visits his temple and finds it utterly lacking in real fruit. Lots of activity, lots of religious stuff, but no real fruit, and so he shuts it down. All the stuff mentioned here enabled the temple to function. So when it talks about buyers and sellers, there isn't just, it's not like a gift shop or something. They are selling the sacrifices for the worshippers to sacrifice. And Jesus says, no, stop it. The money changes. Every Jewish male had to pay a tax. He had to pay half a shekel every year for the upkeep of the temple. It had to be paid in a particular kind of currency. And so they set up these little sort of bureau de change kind of stalls for people so that that would be possible. And Jesus sends all those coins scattering everywhere. The desks get chucked over. He's shutting it down. If you can't carry stuff through the courtyard, you can't get anything into the temple itself. He is shutting it down. It's chaos, isn't it? Can you imagine it? Is the Jesus in our imagination capable of doing something like this? Or is the Jesus of our imagination just that, just our imagination? And that Jesus wouldn't say boo to a goose. Because the real Jesus said and did a lot more than that. This incident is, is often called the cleansing of the temple. Um, but as, as Dick Lucas pointed out, we normally cleanse things in order to reuse them. But this is the end for the temple. He is cursing fruitless religion. But what's actually wrong with it? People tend to sort of take stories like this and make it about whatever they want to be. So, oh, he, he chucked out money changers. Jesus must be anti-capitalist or something like that. Well, let's listen to what Jesus actually says. Let's listen to what he actually says in verse 17. 
because he didn't just do things, he taught them. It says, and as he taught them, he said, is it not written, my house will be called a house of prayer for all nations, but you have made it a den of robbers. He's quoting from the Bible, as he so often does. He first of all is quoting from Isaiah 56. It's one of the clearest bits of the Bible about the future for non-Jews in God's people. People like most of us, I would imagine. The Lord speaks about foreigners who bind themselves to the Lord. So people like me, British people, most, most, most non-Jewish people are saying, those who come to the Lord to say, I want, to, I want you to be my God, what's going to happen for them? It says, these I will bring to my holy mountain and give them joy in my house of prayer. Their burnt offerings and sacrifices will be accepted on my altar, for my house will be called a house of prayer for all nations. It's an amazing thing that people like me would not have been allowed in. God wants to come in. He wants not just the people who are already there, all of us to come in. And that was the purpose of the temple court. So if we look at a little picture of the thing, we've got the main bit there where the red arrow there. That's the Holy of Holies in there. That's where the Lord is. You've got an area just outside where the sacrifices actually happened. You've got another area just there. And each one's like a filter that only certain people can go in. But this outer area, the big bit, is the court of the Gentiles. Anybody can go there. And it's an open invitation to the world to come and meet Israel's God. Anybody interested can come and seek the Lord. This ought to have been a place with all the evangelistic leaflets and outreach initiatives. This ought to have been the place where there was worship of God going on, not just further in, but worship there as all sorts of people come to find God. It's supposed to be a house of prayer for all nations. And instead, it's just bedlam. They were saying, oh, this is just sort of a corridor bit. No, this is supposed to be a place of worship. All this buying and selling and hustle and bustle. It would have been like, I'm going to try and have my quiet time in the middle of the Darwin Center. There's a lot of people. There's a lot of shopping. Not a lot of praying. There's a lot of activity. A lot of leaves. No fruit. You might look at the temple from a distance and go, wow, this is popular, isn't it? What a lot's going on. Look at all this activity. It's very impressive. A lot of money changing hands. But Jesus looks at it and says, where's God in all this? God's not the focus of this. Where's all the godly behavior in this? Where's the prayer? Where are the Gentiles coming to know the Lord? It's not happening. It's just busy, 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 busy. There's no actual spiritual life. There's no prayer. There's no reaching out. It's just self-focused busyness. And instead of a house of prayer for all nations, what was it? He, they turned it into a den of robbers. That is an indictment, isn't it? To say God's temple is now a den of robbers. And there's a hint here that, that the people running the stalls might have been exploiting people, robbing them, whether that's charging them too much for things or, or, or what have you. But bear in mind, Jesus throws out the people who are buying as well as selling. So I don't think that's the only thing that's going on here. A den of robbers is where robbers are at home. They nick a load of stuff, make a getaway, back to their den. And they go, quick, let's hide in here. The police can't get us in here. And that's the idea of Jeremiah 7, where this den of robbers is being quoted from. Let me, let me read a, a few bits from there, where God takes issue with how people treated the temple. 
God says this, do not trust in deceptive words and say, this is the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord. If you really change your ways and your actions and deal with each other justly, then I will let you live in this place. Will you steal and murder, commit adultery and perjury, burn incense to Baal and follow other gods you have not known and then come and stand before me in this house which bears my name and say, we are safe. Safe to do all these detestable things. Has this house which bears my name become a den of robbers to you? But I have been watching, declares the Lord. You see what's happening in Jeremiah 7 there? The people are openly sinning. They're living in rebellion against God. They're not repenting. They're not changing. But then they go to the temple like robbers in their den and they go, well, God can't get us in here. All our religious activity, it's just a front. It's just a cover for the life that we really live in opposition to God. And so when Jesus calls it a den of robbers, he's criticizing all of them and saying, look, you don't give two hoots about God, but you go, I'm all right, I'm in the temple. Look at all my religious busyness. Jesus is not fooled. It's nothing but leaves. It's not fruit. He's not impressed with the branches heavy with greenery. He wants fruit. He wants real fruit of changed lives, genuine worship. But before we make the story about how bad they were, and it is a, a, a sort of denouncing of how it was then, what about now? If Jesus were to look at the UK, would he find it in a better state? Or would he find religious institutions withered to the roots? Churches very busy, but actually dead. People with just enough religion to give themselves a false sense of security, like robbers in their den who don't realize, actually, the police have been watching and there is going to be a dawn raid. There is going to be judgment. Are we bearing fruit? Or is it just leaves? Jesus' real problem is not with the money changing and the buying and the selling per se. It's with the leafiness of all the stuff and the doing without the fruit of really responding to God. And we see that fruitlessness in verse 18, most of all, it says, The chief priests and the teachers of the law heard this and began looking for a way to kill him, for they feared him, because the whole crowd was amazed at his teaching. You see that? The leaders of God's people hear the condemnation and refuse to listen. They aren't cut to the heart. They aren't inspired to change in the slightest little bit. It's just too challenging, so he's got to die. This is leafiness, isn't it? We've got respectable pillars of the community gathered in their beautiful robes, huddled in their sacred building, plotting to kill God's son. Where's the fruit? Where's the real righteousness? These teachers of the law, apparently unaware of that very obscure command, you shall not murder. It's just, they don't really mean any of it. This challenges their power. They're afraid of how much other people like it. So he comes in as a king. He marches in yesterday as a king. Now he comes in here and acts like a judge. We've got to stamp this out. Goodness knows what he's going to do next. And the battle lines are drawn. Now when Jesus cursed the tree, it was dead within 24 hours. When Jesus curses the temple, 
we should draw the dots and say, okay, it's only a matter of time. In AD 70, the temple was destroyed. And one day, Jesus will finish the job, not just on one particular building, but on the world. This is just a tiny taster of what it will be like when Jesus comes back as judge and king, when everything is truly turned, when all the proud religious activity is shown up for what it is, all the rebellion, all the sin is driven out from God's presence. And Jesus' anger on that day, well, what happened that day will just be nothing compared with then. How are we going to escape? How are we going to escape that kind of right anger? We can't point to our religious activity, can we? We can't say, well, look at all the busy things I've been doing. That's exactly what he's coming to speak against. I was thinking about this and thinking about Adam and Eve. They, they were sewing together fig leaves, weren't they? Fig leaves. That'll cover it up. Let's have a load of fig leaves. That'll cover up our shame and our sin and our nakedness. No. We can try and cover it all up with our fig leaves. He's looking for fruit, not leaves. It is fruit he's after. And that's how the story ends. It does end more positively, you'll be pleased to hear. With Jesus, the new temple, calling for fruit. Jesus, the new temple, calling for fruit. He hasn't given up on his search for fruit. He curses the fruitless religion because he's still hungry for it. He still wants it. Yeah, the old temple is misused. It's going to be in ruins. But he doesn't leave us with no way of meeting with God anymore. Instead, he is that way of meeting with God. He is the new temple. The nations don't need to flock to a building anymore. They need to flock to him. He's the person where God and humanity meet. He's the person who deals with our sin. We're going to think about that shortly when we take communion, as we think about his death as our sacrifice in our place so we can meet with God. His death that leads to the temple curtain being torn in two. It's as if God the Father joins in with what Jesus was doing and starts ripping up the furniture and throwing it all out because it's not needed anymore because Jesus is where we meet with God. And he calls his people to bear fruit, real, fresh fruit of changed lives, of faith. So, so when Peter comes out and he sees the withered tree and he goes, look at this, look, look what, it went, you, you cursed it and look at it now. Jesus' response is to say in verse 22, have faith in God. He's calling him to bear the kind of fruit that we haven't just seen in the temple. I think when he says have faith, yes, that means, don't be so surprised if I say something and it happens. But also, look, if that's what happens when something is fruitless, bear fruit, have faith. Don't be like that tree. Don't be like those in the temple. Not being a house of prayer in verse 17. That was the problem. And the solution among God's people, verse 23 and 24, pray. Show the fruit of your faith by praying, praying boldly, praying confidently on Jesus' say-so. And he used a really exaggerated example, doesn't he, in verse 23, about praying for a mountain to be thrown into the sea. Now, why would you pray for that? Lord, pick up that tree and put it on the roof. Why? How's that going to help anybody? Well, it's, again, it's not random. It's a prayer about judgment. Twice in Mark, throwing something into the sea is a picture of judgment. 
And what is being thrown? This mountain, not just a mountain, this mountain, the Temple Mount of Jerusalem. This is saying what you've just said will happen, cursing that place. That will happen. Let's pray for those things. Years later, the rabbis would say, from the day on which the temple was destroyed, the gates of prayer have closed. A wall of iron divides Israel and their Father in heaven. And Jesus says, no. The temple may be gone, but you can now pray anywhere. We can meet with God wherever, whenever, through Jesus in prayer. So that is the kind of fruit he's after. Are we praying? If I said, I've got a wonderful relationship with my wife, I never talk to her, but we've got a great relationship, you would say, well, there's not much fruit for that claim. (laughs) Praying is a big part of that fruit that Jesus is looking for. And similarly, as well as prayer, the temple was a place where forgiveness was found. Where do we find that? Again, in Jesus Through prayer, verse 25, when you stand praying, if you hold anything against anyone, forgive them so that your Father in heaven may forgive you your sins. We skim over this, but if you are used to temples and rituals, this is amazing. He's saying to his disciples, pray for forgiveness and you'll receive it. No temples requires, except him. Pray for forgiveness and you will receive it. But that forgiveness also needs to flow out of you, not just into you. Having been forgiven, we need to forgive, and vice versa. Compare that to the temple again. The the chief priests have something against Jesus, and so they forgive him. Oh, no, they don't. They try and have him killed. Jesus, the new temple, the new way of relating to God, calls for real fruit. So as we close, let's, let's ask ourselves, Whatever our lives look like from afar, up close, is there real fruit growing? Faith, shown in prayerfulness, forgiveness. If Jesus was to visit you or I, would he find that real seeking after him? Relationships of forgiving and not exploiting each other. Or would he find leaves, busyness, religiousness. Are we ready to hear that challenge or will we shut it out like they did? We all hate stuff, don't we, that looks good from a distance and is actually rubbish up close. Let's let this be a very stark warning to us. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, we want to thank you for this clear warning from Jesus that just showiness and flashiness and outward religious busyness is not what you are looking for. Instead, you want people who genuinely seek after you, who turn to you for forgiveness, who, who actually turn and our lives are changed as we, as we believe, as we have faith. We, we pray for that kind of fruit in our lives. May we please hear this warning, each one of us. Turn to Jesus for forgiveness and for fruit. In Jesus' name, amen.